Well, thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that uh, when we were lost and stuck in our sin and nothing else would do, that your love lifted us out of the miry pit, saved our souls by your good grace, and how deep our Father's love is for us. Father, you are so good to us, and you've ordered our steps today to gather and be seated in this room together, and now reaching for our Bibles, we ask for your blessing on this time that you'll use it to challenge us and grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin this morning with a picture in your mind, a snapshot from my boyhood. You can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, uh, even as, uh, as you listen. I have a memory of being up on my grandpa's farm in the north part of Wisconsin um, as a little boy in the 60s, and a big rat had gotten in the chicken house. And I had an uncle who was a bachelor who lived at home with my grandpa and grandma, and I remember with great anticipation and excitement as we got my grandpa's car out and dumped a quart of oil down the gas tank to create smoky exhaust, and my uncle Bud backed my grandfather's big old car. It would have been a 1950-something. Only two things I remember about that car. It was a light-colored pink, and my grandfather had painted it with a brush. But um, (laughs) they got the smoke rolling out of that exhaust pipe, and my uncle took a pipe and fed it down where they had found the rat hole underneath the rat, the the chicken coop. And then my uncle stood there with my grandpa's old Remington semi-automatic 22, and I was totally impressed as I watched the dirt fly as he caught up with that rat when it came scurrying out of that hole. The rat had done a lot of damage to my grandfather's chickens, and they declared war on that rat and took him out. I want you to have that mindset this morning as we delve back into our message sequence on sin. We are poking around our Bible, making sure we understand how serious sin is, and it's worse than you think it is, and we want to have that mindset now today. We've talked early on about some of the things that God has done for us. We will continue in the Christmas season to emphasize some of the things that God has done for us in Christ to solve our sin problem, but today, starting in last week with hacking Agag to pieces, we're talking about the believer's responsibility. Do you remember last week when Samuel took his sword, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and he hacked Agag in pieces after King Saul had disobeyed God? And Agag was a type of sin. We, had to, we have to totally remove it. We can't goof around. We can't play around. And though God has done so much for us in Christ, the Apostle Paul teaches this regularly, that, that we've been crucified with Christ, and we are now to reckon or to understand ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. We see this morning in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, that we, as individual believers in the Lord Christ, though spiritually our standing is pure and complete in Christ, spiritually speaking, that while we live in this sin-cursed world, in a body that has been highly impacted and carries a residual of the fall, we have this flesh, a carnality, Galatians chapter 5 says that the, that the old nature, some translated, the old nature or the flesh, that there is a remnant of us from the fall of sin until our bodies are redeemed fully in the resurrection of Jesus Christ someday. 
We have the capacity in this body not only to sin, but to maintain, even in Christ, as we are in Christ, even with this leftover in the flesh or with this residual of the old nature, we can desire to sin and we can yield and we can sin. You know that, don't you? You know what it is to lose your temper. You know what it is to lust. Some of you know what it is to to battle, to overcome tendencies from your past. Maybe you were a thief when you were young. And now, sometimes you like to steal. Maybe there were other habits that you had or other practices. And there are moments and times when you get just a little smell or you get just a little glimpse of something and it all comes rushing back and, oh man, the flesh comes alive. Now, you need to understand that our bodies are not evil. A misunderstanding of this doctrine leads to asceticism. It leads to people doing strange things like like, um, hurting themselves, thinking that somehow that gains a righteousness. Around the world, major religious groups do this. People will walk on their knees until they bleed, will uh, travel on their knees to go worship until they're bloody. Uh, Certain parts of the world, certain faiths are practiced in a way where people will whip themselves until their bodies, their backs just bleed and pour out blood because they're they're trying to hurt their body to try to get rid of the sin and to try to bring their body into conformity with the righteousness of Christ. That's not how it works. So you can do all that and still maintain this desire to sin. And so the Apostle Paul puts on the believer a responsibility. We read about this in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. We read about it really clearly right here in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Notice what he says. Now, he has taught repeatedly, if you study the Apostle Paul, he will teach that you have been crucified with Christ and, and, and yet, nevertheless, um, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And, and so our bodies aren't evil, but yet because of the fall, we carry the capacity, the fall of sin, we carry the capacity to want to sin until we're with the Lord. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, which will be our main text for the day, he says, Now put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, What is of the earth or what is the old nature of the flesh? Put it to death. The subject of the sentence is you. That's a personal response. And so, we as believers, even in the Lord Christ, Christ doing a work of grace in us, even missionary Tom, who was saved in a basement after a National Enquirer commercial, is in a battle. The battle rages. You know what I'm talking about. And so today we want to talk about that battle, and you need to understand something as we go into it. I'm not going to be able to give you a list from the Word of God or anywhere else where I can say to you, okay, if you do these five things, and you get going this afternoon and really work on this, and then work on this, and then build on that, and do this, and do this, that by next Wednesday afternoon, say Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, if you do these five things, the battle for sin is over. The bad news is, is that until we are fully redeemed and in the presence of the Lord and we see Him as He is and we will be like Him, 1 John says, and we have our resurrection body, that we will have the capacity to want to sin. And Paul says, you've got to put it to death. You've got to take agag and hack it to pieces. There's a rat in the chicken house and you better smoke it out. And so once you get it out, you've got to watch out. Another rat wants to move in. 
And so we have this battle that never ends and we've got to keep the guns blazing. We've got to fight the good fight, the Apostle Paul told young Timothy. And, and the Apostle Paul himself even worried about himself at the end of his life. And he said, he said and this is a, wor- a verse that's misconstrued for asceticism. He said, I beat my body. I, I buffet my body. I bring it under subjection. Lest, here at the end of my life, I should sin and fail. I've got to have self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit. The very first one. Self-control. And so we're in a battle. The battle won't end. But what we want to do is we want to strengthen ourselves for battle. And we want to see what the Apostle Paul says today will help us be equipped for a battle. Five statements today that will help us be better equipped to fight the fight. Because the battle rages. It will continue to rage. Now, there is good news. The more you fight, the more you want to fight. And the more you want to fight, the easier it is to fight. As you grow and as you develop as a Christian and God begins to work in your life and the the word of God impacts you and the people of God impact you and you're walking in the will of God, you will get to where some of the sin that you fight with on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly or moment by moment basis, you will get to where some of that just kind of fades away and you'll think to yourself, man, I don't even think like that anymore. And with the renewing of the mind and with the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit in you, you never stop fighting, but the battle changes. And you'll see some mature, godly people, and they can get to where they could go to all the old places where years ago they used to sin. They could walk through there and not even be tempted anymore. That doesn't mean that they still don't have to work on other kinds of sin. But... But God has a way of growing us and strengthening us so there is hope. And then you can get where you're repulsed by that sin. Where you no longer harbor it. That little rat that's under the chicken coop. You don't want anybody to know, but you really like that rat. And that little rat, he kind of means something to you. And maybe you don't really want to kill him. I hear it's getting politically incorrect to kill rats and that you got to capture them by family groups and move them out somewhere. That's true. That's um, the D.C., Council is working on that. What I already told you is what you do with rats. Okay. The Apostle Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen, the first thing on our list of things that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind, is that we must respond to the call for extermination. Number one, based on Paul's teaching, we must must respond to the call for extermination. The word put to death, translated put to death, is literally to kill it. Kill it. And you need, that's what that word means in the Greek. You need to kill this sin, it's this residual, the rat under the chicken coop. Get rid of it. Then the Apostle Paul breaks down and he gives us a list. He gives us a list of just a sampling of some of the things that we need to kill, that we got to get out of our lives. Look what he says. Put to death, you therefore put to death, this is my job, I've got to do it. What is earthly in you, the things that I battle in the flesh. Number one, not surprisingly, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Because that's such a gateway sin for so many other things that go awry. 
Do you know that the Greek word that's translated here, sexual immorality, you'll know this word. It's a Greek word that sounds something like this. Pornania. Pornania. We get the English word pornography from it. It's a Greek word that is, that is a kind of an all-encompassing word for illicit sexual sin. Sin that is based on sexuality that is outside of the will and plan of God. It's pornania. It's to be removed from our lives. How relevant is this for our culture? I mean, how many scripts in evening television would become totally rendered useless if you took the pornania out of it? Anything that referenced illicit sexual activity outside of the will of God, the joking, the lines, the dynamic, the interaction. How about late night talk shows? Their comedy lines would be totally rendered useless if you took pornania out of it. We live in a culture that's steeped with this. The Apostle Paul says to the believer, you got to kill that. you got to do battle on that. You cannot mess around. You smoke that rat out and then you kill it. Get rid of it. We must respond to this call for extermination. And the first step here, the Apostle Paul challenges us with, is a mindset. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of Christians never get victory in their lives is because they never take seriously this call for extermination. Oh, we know we're supposed to fight sin. We know we're in a battle, but we take it easy. We think, oh, it's probably not, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal. So we've got our little pet sin and we've got our little pet rats under the chicken coop and, and we just don't worry about it. We really don't want to exterminate them all. I was sitting at my desk and I was thinking how bad sin is. I mean, it seems like I've been extra sensitized to it in preaching this sermon series. How much God has to say about it. And it's so big of a deal that the entire Christmas season will be focusing on God's response to sin and what he did to solve our sin problem. But I was thinking, too, how bad it is around the world, but then in the life of the believer, how on a regular basis I see the residuals of sin and how much damage it does. And, and very quickly on my scrap paper, I, I labeled, I listed 20 things that sin does regularly in the lives of believers that I've observed. 20 things that sin does in the lives of believers on a regular basis that I've observed in my pastoral work and in my own life. Number one, sin ruins my prayer life and breaks my fellowship and communion with my Heavenly Father. That's sad. I don't want to call my dad. How I long to call my dad. He's been with the Lord 14 years. But then to have a heavenly father and I'm ignoring him, I'm hiding behind the bushes, squatting down, trying to cover myself up, hoping he'll walk past me instead of communing and fellowshipping with him like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Sin ruins my prayer life and breaks my fellowship with the heavenly father. Number two, sin, sin will steal your joy. In Psalm 51, when David was sinning with Bathsheba and he was far from God, after he got right with God, he wrote Psalm 51. And it's very emotional. And one of the things he said is that his bones melted. He, he plunged into depression even. It steals your joy. Number three, it grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit who lives in me and is a, is a moment-by-moment observer of my life. It grieves him and it quenches his work in my life. Number four, it removes my interest and desire for the Word of God. I'm bored with my Bible when I let sin in. 
The Bible's not important to me, even as a believer in Christ. Number five, it can destroy loving fellowship in the body of Christ, and it can callous my heart for the people of God. You know, people who used to be friends and then sin entered, and now they no longer talk to each other. Precious friendships are broken because of sin. Number six, it often hurts the people closest to me. When I sin, often the people who pay the dearest price are the people closest to me, often costing them emotional, physical, and financial hurt. Deep financial, physical, emotional hurt. Number seven, sin damages the reputation of Jesus Christ and my church because I am, I am a little Christ and I'm a representative of Christ and my pastor and my church. And when I sin, I make a fool out of all three of those things. Number eight, it, re- it renders my gospel witness ineffective. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say about Jesus when you're living in sin. Number nine, it desensitizes my conscience making it easier to sin the next time. That's how bad sin is. You sin now, it's going to be easier to sin next week if you don't care about sin this week. Number 10, closely related to that, when I sin, it often requires additional sin to cover up my first sin. It grows. Number 11, it blocks the blessing of God in my life. It's, it's like I have a, a lead umbrella over me and nothing can penetrate. No blessing rays of God can come through. And I block His blessing in my life. Number 12, it makes worship useless and even offensive to God. Number 13, it can short-circuit the will of God for my life, even wasting my life and potential. Number 14, it can make me physically sick, ruin my health, and emotionally break me down and plunge me into depression. It's not a big deal. Sin's not a big deal. Number 15, it can create significant financial hardship in my own life, not to speak of other people's lives. Number 16, it can desecrate my body, which is the very temple of Jesus Christ. Number 17, It can break my mother and father's hearts and cause them lots of tears. Number 18, it can make a huge fool out of me and most of the time I won't even know that I'm being so dumb. Number 19, it makes me think and say dumb things like, I wonder why this is happening. Or why doesn't God love me? If God loved me, He wouldn't let this happen to me. And it's nothing but the fallout of sin. Number 20, I didn't make this one up, but I thought it it capped it all off. Sin will take me farther than I want to go, keep me longer than I want to stay, and cost me more than I want to pay. That's what sin does. And so Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that you've got to have a mindset to exterminate it. Sexual immorality is the first example he gives. That's pornania. It's a huge cultural issue with us. You can't play games with that. It is more accessible to sin in that area nowadays than ever before. So the battle rages. He next word that he uses is impurity. Impurity. It's a Greek word that just means filthiness or uncleanness. In, in the innuendo with the word, it's the idea of something that was clean, but now it's dirty. I was clicking on watching a friend of mine out in California, Sean Thornton, preach a message. And I don't think it was this passage that he was illustrating. But he brought some people up on the stage. And I was just sitting in my office listening to the message. And it's on video. And he tried to serve a lady out of the audience donuts on a bedpan. 
So why don't you have a donut? And he had a bunch of donuts on a bedpan. And he wanted, why? Because that's something that is dirty. It's impure. And so I don't want to mess with it. And that's the idea of this word. It's something that's been made unclean. Even if something potentially could be clean, we turn it and make it unclean. We see that all the time in our world. He talks about this passion and evil desire, two things closely related. These are deep feelings and desires to participate in sin, even if I won't admit it. It's a passion and evil desire. has to do with lust, the idea that I really wish I could. And then he says covetousness which seems to pop out of nowhere all of a sudden, and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, and covetousness is nothing more than replacing my agenda and my desires and my wants that are, that are all outside of the will of God and putting them in front of God. Therefore, I put myself ahead of God. Therefore, it's really a form of self-worship. It's idolatry. It's my agenda becomes more important than God's agenda, and I don't care who gets in the way. And I worship myself and my own desires. The first thing we have to do is we have to have a mindset that I have to kill it. This is, we're not playing games. The second thing we see in the text, number two, is that I must leave no room for accommodation. I must leave no room for accommodation. Notice what he says. He gives this sample list. I'm confident it's just a sample listing. These are things that we must put to death. By the way, if you put these things to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, if you put that much to death in your life, you're well on your way to living a holy life. Because, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's an interesting statement. There's the whole verse. On account of these things, God's wrath is going to be poured out. There is a coming judgment. God hates this stuff. And, and if we understand how outside of the will of God this is, and that it's always a perversion of God's good gifts that turn into sin, and, and God hates this, and, and His wrath is coming. And so therefore, why would I hide a little rat from underneath the chicken coop in a box in my closet, and I accommodate it? And it's, it's something that the wrath of God is coming to. And so principle number two is that I leave no room in my life for accommodation. And we are experts at this. There's a call for ex complete extermination. But I want to accommodate this little thing because I'm really not that serious about it. And then it gets away and gets us. As many of you know Wayne and Carolyn McKenzie. They are, they are just dear People who have given their lives to the ministry here the last 18 years. And Wayne's been chairman of our elder board and, and uh, just wonderful people. And they have, a, they have a beautiful home over here in Charlestown. And I remember a number of years ago when Wayne and Carolyn first built their home, um, that it wasn't too many years after that, a little season after they were in their new home, maybe five or six years after they were in their home, that somehow some kind of a wasp or hornets got up in the attic and they came down and they, they literally, the way they found out about it, in one of their upstairs guest bedrooms, a spot was created on the ceiling and when they caught, they figured out and it came through the paper, the wasps came and literally ate through the insulation and the drywall right into their house and there was wasps. And, and you know what Carolyn did? 
Carolyn went down and sat at the kitchen counter with a cup of tea and told Wayne, don't even worry about it. If you know Wayne and Carolyn, you know, you know better than that. You know what Carolyn did, right? You know old Wayne had to get on the phone. You know that that door was shut. The bottom of the crack was sealed off with towels and, and caulk. And, and everything was kept in there. And so the exterminator came. And then you know what Carolyn did a funny thing. When the exterminator came and got up in there and showed him all this, Carolyn said, give me a little jar of those little wasps. I want to keep a little jar of those wasps. I'll feed them a little water and honey and just keep them for pets. No, she's not going to accommodate any of those wasps, Right? They're going to be gone. And that's the whole mindset here. I exterminate and I do not accommodate because it's going to disrupt my life later on, even if it doesn't show through right away. The third thing I want you to see is this stuff is deadly. The wrath of God is coming because of it. It's, it's not a joke. Then verse 7, he says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So it's representative of your old life. You too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. The third concept that we have to keep at the forefront of our thinking in this battle as it rages, number three, is that I must show real evidence of transformation. There needs to be real evidence of transformation going on in my life. Notice verse 7. In these two, you look at the next phrase, you once walked. Is that past tense or present tense? You once walked, but not anymore. It's past tense. And then he says, when you were living. Is that past tense or present tense? You were living. Right, Chris? Chris, you almost called on you for your testimony this morning. You once walked, and you were living, but praise God. Transformation, right? No more. It's over. Look what he says. And you were living in them. And then the first two words of verse 8. But now. All right, listen. Too many of us are comfortable with looking in our Christianity like we used to look outside of our Christianity. Too many of us are willing to just kind of look like the world and act like the world and laugh at the things of the world and, and listen to the things of the world and be entertained by the things that appeal to the flesh that lead to sin that are supposed to be exterminated. But we're very comfortable with it because we just don't get too excited about transformation. Do you remember Paul's clear clarion call in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beg of you, brethren, he said. I beseech you in the kingdom. I beg of you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your, and there it is, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This isn't unreasonable. This is your reasonable work. This is your reasonable act of service. And be not conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God in your life. You know? But the problem is, we're not worried about transformation. We're not doing our part. God will work with us. I've used this illustration before, but it's the old concept of, you know, you're on the front porch... And you're drinking your tea, and it's hot summer, and the grass, you can, you can hear the grass growing. And so you say, Lord, I need your help today, Lord. Would you please stop my grass from growing? Lord, would you please mow my lawn? 
Your wife comes out and they say, what are you doing? I'm asking God to take care of my lawn here. God, I want God to own everything. And she said, well, don't you have a lawnmower? Yeah, I got a lawnmower. Don't you have gas? Yeah. Does the lawnmower work? Yeah, it's a good lawnmower. Where is it? It's right out in the shed. But God will take care. See, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It's just ridiculous. And a lot of us live our Christian... Lord, would you just remove this from my life? Lord, would you just take care of this? you got a lawnmower and gas. Put it in there and take care of it. You can do it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can make a change here. And then as I get up and move, who gives me the strength? Who gives me the next breath? Who gives me the brain cells with enough oxygen to think a clear thought and keep my feet out from under the lawnmower? God does. He works with us. You don't just sit around and ask God to take care of things that he's called you to take care of. And you need to see a work of transformation going on in your life that you offer your body as a living sacrifice. Fourth thing I want you to see, and this is, a, this is related to part of what we've talked about, but I want it to be practical, a little bit more practical. Number four is that I must be absolutely serious about elimination. Notice what he says. I must be absolutely serious about elimination. Okay? We've talked about extermination. Now, how exactly do I eliminate these things from my life? Because look at verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8. But now you must put them, look at the next, all away. You've got to eliminate how much? How many rats under the chicken coop are we supposed to get rid of? All of the rats. We went from ag-gag being a type of sin to the rat under the chipping coop being a rat, a type of sin, didn't we? And so you get rid of all of them, and we have to eliminate. How are we going to do that? How, on a regular, daily basis, do I eliminate sin in my life? I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter uh, 28 and verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13. And key word number one under this point is the word confess. Confess. Now, as you're turning to Proverbs 28, let me remind you, and if you're taking notes, you want to write down the key verse on this, is not really Proverbs 28, 13. It's 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. You know that verse, maybe? If you've been around church a while, it is, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a great verse or what? i got this problem... I've sinned, messed up, kind of mad at myself about it, not happy, I've hurt people close to me, it's cost me time, I've broken fellowship with the Lord, I'm not interested in the Word, and now what I need to get on my knees and I need to what? First thing I need to do, I need to confess this sin. Now what you need to understand is that confess doesn't mean to just say my sins. It's not like I go to my confessional booth with God as my priest and just tell him what I've done. He already knows what I've done. He already knows it. And then like, okay, go do this and then everything's cool. It's not like that. To confess literally means to be in agreement with. When I confess my sin, it is me Telling God that I agree with you about what you think about my sin and I want to think the same things. We are in agreement. And I come to a place where I agree with God about my sin. Otherwise, we can just kind of like go through these little verbal gymnastics, right? 
And I go to 1 John 1, 9, and it's like, okay, let me see. I wrote some things down here. Yep, I did that. I did it. Oh, God, I confess my sins. Thank you. Put it in my pocket, and I get to go sin some more. And then I whip out 1 John 1, 9. I confess it's kind of like my little evangelical indulgences passage. You know, I want to indulge in my sin, so I'll do 1 John 1, 9. I get, no, you know what it is? It's in, embedded in that, embedded in the concept of agreeing with God about my sin is, is that I'm starting to hate it. And, and I admit that it's true, and that it's damaging, and that it's dirty, and it's ugly, because a holy, pure God says so. It does not conform to His standard. And now the second key word is to forsake it. To forsake it. The first thing I do is I confess. How do I get serious about elimination? That's what we're talking about. How do I get serious about eliminating rats from under my chicken coop? Number one, I confess the sin. I confess it. I agree with God, His view. Number two, though, I do more than just agree in my mind and in my words. I forsake it. Now look at 28.13 of Proverbs. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Boy, that's we're good at that, aren't we? We like to cover up. We want to save face. That's what Saul did with Samuel, remember? After he said, oh yeah, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. Now make me look good in front of the elders and the people. He was trying to conceal his failures. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Now look at the last part of 28.13, Proverbs. But he who confesses, agrees with God about the heinous nature of this, and forsakes them, will find mercy. Do you know what forsake means? It means to abandon. It means when you forsake something, it means to renounce, even though it was something that at one point might have been cherished, it means to renounce it without intent to recover or resume. It's to quit, to leave entirely, to abandon it, forsake it. And now we're, now we're talking the hard part, aren't we? Oh, the first John 1, 9, I confess my sin, I confess my sin. All right, now forsake it. Forsake it. That means you've got your behavior, your behavior has to back up your mouth. That's the hard part. Do you know why you need to sit in a Sunday school class? Do you know why you need a small group? Do you know why you need a prayer group? Do you know why you need Christian friends? Do you know, you know why you need to stop watching certain things, reading certain things, listening to certain things, hanging around with certain people? Because you will never forsake it if you keep that stuff and accommodate it. So you've got to eliminate that stuff and then you've got to replace it. That's the third word. You've got to replace it. By the way, three thoughts further about forsaking before... We talk about replacement. To forsake means to quit or leave it entirely abandoned. Number one, you will never forsake sin if you have a haughty spirit. You will never forsake your sin if you have a haughty spirit. Christians who are proud usually hide their sin. And they usually have pet rats. James 4.6 God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The second thing, you will never forsake your sin if you have a hidden stash. You will never forsake your sin if you, A, have a haughty spirit, B, if you have a hidden stash. Any hidden stash out there? This week I was sitting at my desk and Clint, our custodian, came 
And he knocked on my door and opened it, and he threw me a little bag of, yellow bag of peanut M&M's. He knows that I love peanut M&M's. And then he got a big old grin on his face, and he said, with a laugh, I got a stash. And then he shut the door, and he walked away. And then I thought, I got to find the stash. He's got a stash. You got a stash? You're getting rid of most everything, but then you got this stash, this little sidebar where you can get your hands on whatever it is you need at a certain time. See, that's not elimination. You will never forsake your sin if you have a haughty spirit, if you have a hidden stash, or if you are into half-hearted obedience. Number three, half-hearted obedience. The psalmist said in Psalm 86.12, Psalm 86.12, that it was with his whole heart, his whole heart, they wanted to see. Listen, it's very difficult to have a whole heart if you, if you don't care about the, about the word of God, the people of God, the will of God, the blessing of God. You've got to groom that. That's why it's non-negotiable that you're with God's people. It's non-negotiable that you're in the Word. It's non-negotiable that other things don't come in your ears because bad things happen. Now get rid of that stuff. Number one, I confess. Number two, I forsake. I will never forsake if I have a haughty spirit, a hidden stash, or half-hearted obedience. Number three, I replace. Back to Colossians chapter 3 for the conclusion. I replace three things that I have to be Become a Christian expert in confession, forsaking, and replacement. Chapter 3 of Colossians. Look down at verse 9 and 10. He goes on and he says, You must put them all away. He gives us in verse 8, put them all away. That's total elimination. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And verse 10, you have put on. You should take your pen and you should circle put off in verse 9. And you should circle put on in verse 10. The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ is the center. Replacement. Psalm 51.10, when David was recovering, as I've already referenced, from that incredible, probably 10 months to 14 months where he was way outside of the will of God. And the prophet Nathan came and tapped him on the chest, told him that story about the rich man that had all the sheep and then went over to his neighbors who only had one little pet lamb for their child and took that pet lamb and slaughtered it and ate it. And David got enraged and said, go find that guy and kill him for me. And Nathan taps him, taps him on the chest and said, you're the man. You got all this at your disposal. You go to your neighbor and take his wife, Bathsheba. David comes to his senses after a year of miserable, miserable living. And in Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's a little bit like the prodigal son we referenced a few weeks ago. Remember when he's upside down with his face down in a pig trough eating what the pigs eat? And then it says, and then he came to his senses. 
Listen, if you're fighting with sin and you have a hard time forsaking sin, you need to ask God to give you a clear mind about it. You need to come to your senses. And you need to have this prayer of Psalm 51.10, Father, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me that I will think like you think and not think like the world and not think the way my natural man wants to think, the way I used to think all the time. Do you do know that God's not out to ruin your good times, right? you know that? God is not out to ruin your good times. And it is amazing, and we can find interviews in here that would be perfect for this spot, of how people thought that God was going to ruin their good times, but now the joy and the peace and the stability of their lives, they, they for a second, wouldn't go back to the pig trough of the past. It's the renewing of the mind. It's the transformative power of Christ. What we're talking about is point number five, and it is to establish a pattern of ongoing sanctification in my life. Sanctification, that is, I am conforming. I am putting off, and I'm putting on. I'm putting off, and I'm putting on. I am conforming to the image of Christ. Even in verse 12 of Colossians 3, he says, Put on, then, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so forth he goes. It's replacement. Put it on. I wonder, I wonder who needs to go home and put a quart of oil in the gas tank, so to speak, spiritually, and get some big old blue smoke blowing down into rat holes, and then, and then pop them bad when they come out and get rid of them. Some of us need to get busy Some of us need to get busy. Our hen houses, our chicken houses are laced with tunnels and hidden crooks and crannies and they're filled with rats because we're not doing our job. We've got to do our part to kill it. Stop accommodating it. Paul said in Romans chapter 13 to make no accommodation for the flesh. Make no plans for the flesh. Have to fight it. Let's bow our heads, please. Listen, I know there's a battle raging. The battle continues to rage. In your life right now, what needs to go? What needs exterminated? What needs to happen for transformation to become evidence in your life? Evident in your life. What are you going to do to eliminate? You can only do this through the power of Christ who lives in you. But the good news is that when you are born again and you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ in you enables you to be able to do this. You can do it. It is a lifelong battle. It is never easy. But at least get in the battle. Stop goofing around. Stop being an embarrassment to Jesus. I was thinking, too, how when you really love someone, you don't want to hurt them. And if our love for Christ would just be what it should be, how easy it is to want to obey Him. Not out of a heart of duty, but out of a heart of love. And so, Father, please open our eyes to the danger of these hidden rat holes and the sinful rats that live therein. And give us the ability, one at a time, to smoke them out, get rid of them.
remove them. To begin to walk in a newness of life like never before. To learn how to confess and to forsake and to replace. You know what needs to be done. You know the conviction we need. And so would you please accomplish your purposes in us as a church, and me as an individual, and each of us as individuals. And Father, if the one here today that doesn't know Christ is feeling the sense of need for their sin to be forgiven, show them the reality of the cross where they can dump their burdens at the cross and they can receive your righteousness once and for all by faith and be saved. Lift us up from the miry clay, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.